So our reading today is from Romans 3, verse 19 to 24. Romans 3, verse 19 to 24. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law of the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Thanks, Magda. Um, Just a a reminder to you as well that uh, if you have questions as they may pop up in your mind throughout uh, the message this morning. Uh, you can text those questions to me at the end of the, the sermon, uh, and uh, I can answer those. My phone number is right there in the bulletin uh, if you are looking for it. So we, are, we have been, in the last number of weeks, we've been looking at what we call the core-slash-cornerstone core event in the history of Christianity, and that is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, typically, uh, the cross and the resurrection go together, uh, but we've been focusing uh, on the cross itself in part, well, actually, because, not in part, entirely because um, we're also connecting uh, the cross to objections that people have to Christianity. So, there are lots of reasons people struggle with the the Christian message, um, but one of those reasons is the, the very cross itself, the crucifixion itself. Most people have a problem with Christianity because they see this cross as this weird, old, barbaric practice that uh, is a holdover from ancient pagan religions and that uh, just, they think it's impossible for a modern Western person to believe that kind of stuff. And so what we've been doing is, is we've been looking at different aspects of the cross and different cross for our sins. And we've been looking at uh, different ones each week to help people understand that the cross is not actually an ugly, uh, brutal, repulsive uh, event. It is actually beautiful. So last week we talked about a very difficult one, which was how God's wrath rests on the human race, that God's anger and His judgment rests on the human race, and how Jesus, in dying on the cross, He turns away God's wrath. And today, we're looking at the same passage that we looked at last week, but we're, we're trying to understand 
how that works. How does Jesus turn away God's wrath? What does He do in dying on the cross that turns away God's wrath? We're looking at what's called righteousness or the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And these are all technical words, and if you're not familiar with them, don't worry. I'm not going to use them all that much throughout the message, and hopefully whenever I do, I'll be uh, quick enough to explain it and, and, and define it as we go along. So what we're going to look at here is what it means that Jesus came to be our righteousness and dying on the cross, He was our righteousness. What does that mean? And hopefully we'll also understand why it matters. And you'll see an outline uh, in the back of your bulletin that kind of helps work as a bit of a roadmap for us as as we try to understand this together. So, first of all, what does it mean that Jesus came to be our righteousness? Now, Righteous, righteousness. This is a a word that is not well known or not very uh, well regarded in our modern context, is it? Usually it's used negatively, right? We say that someone is self-righteous and that's not a good thing. We don't use that word as a compliment, right? To be self-righteous is, 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 is a bad thing in our modern context. But Paul talks about righteousness as though it's been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And that is a good thing. This righteousness from God. A righteousness that comes from God. It's a good thing that that has been revealed to us. Oh, okay, well, that doesn't help yet, does it? Probably not. Let's keep reading. Verse 24 helps. Verse 24 says, all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul introduces a different word, but actually he doesn't. (laughs) In the original language, he uses the same word, but we translate it differently in the two verses. So in verse 21, we use the word righteousness, and then in verse 24, we translate the word justify, but the word in the original language is actually the same. Paul is talking about the same thing, but we use different words to help hopefully us understand it a little bit better. What does it mean to justify something? Let's say you're talking to me, we're having a conversation, and you make a statement like, Liverpool is the best football club in the world right now. And I say, you need to justify that statement to me. I'm not buying it. I don't believe that's true. What you need to do is you need to change my regard for that statement because currently I am viewing that statement negatively as in Liverpool is not even close to the best football club in the world right now. And you need to muster an argument or something so that at some point I will regard your statement positively and I will say, yes, you are correct. Liverpool is the best football club in the world right now. Or or an action. You, You have to justify actions, right? How many parents have heard smack, wah, run into the room, what happened? Jimmy hit me. Jimmy, why did you hit Sally? Well, let me tell you. And they've got this long explanation because you are currently regarding the act of Jimmy hitting Sally. You're regarding his action negatively. It is wrong that you have done this, Jimmy. And Jimmy has to say something or, or explain to you why he did what he did to his sister Sally so that you regard his action positively. That's basically 
what we're talking about. In other words, to justify something means to have a positive change or a transform, uh, have a change from a negative relationship to that something to a positive relation to that something. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that God's regard toward us, God's attitude towards us, His relationship towards us was negative. That's why He was going to judge us. We were under His judgment. He, he regarded us negatively before Jesus came. But, but now, after Jesus has come and He has lived for us and He has died for us, and, and when you put your trust in Jesus and what He has done in living for you and dying for you, that instantly changes God's regard for you. He now regards you positively, not negatively. The moment, okay, the moment that you see that Jesus lived and died for you and you receive that, meaning you entrust yourself to Him. You say, I am banking on that. I am, I am hoping in that. I am trusting in that that, that, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. The moment that you accept that, God's regard for you flips. It goes from you are negative, I regard you negatively and you deserve my judgment to I regard you positively and I welcome you into my presence. So when Jesus came to be our righteousness, according to this passage, when he came to be our righteousness, he did something that justified us. Now, why did, that, why did he have to do that? What, what's going on? And there's two problems, so, so I think I, in the outline it says that. Yeah, that's where we are. There's two problems that had to be dealt with that Jesus dealt with in order for us to be justified. And, and His dying solves both of them. We get both of them. And only if you understand that you get both of them will you see how incredible the death of Jesus for your justification, for your righteousness, actually is. The first thing, the first problem is that we sinned. We sinned. It says um, in, uh, where is it? In verse 23, all have sinned. All of us have sinned. And in verse 21, it says, um, apart from the law, the righteous, no, sorry, verse 19, it says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, listen to this, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Paul is saying that not a single human being on the planet is going to be able to change God's regard for them from negative to positive through obedience to God's moral law. It's impossible. Not a single one of us is able to meet the standard. In fact, if we try to, to, to meet the standard, if we try to make ourselves approved by God through our obedience to the law, what actually happens is, is we discover more and more just how bad it actually is because the role of the law, all the law can do is, is it can show us our shortcomings and our failures and where we don't measure up. Now, let's say... This may sound a little bit weird, but uh, listen to this. You know how um, in Hollywood, uh, 
people, when they're going to get ready to go on set and do a shoot, the actors, they sit in front of these makeup tables. And these makeup tables, they have all these lights all the way around. And the idea is, is that you stick your face close to the mirror and these lights shine on you. And what it does is, is it accentuates the blemishes, right? Uh, some people have these kinds of tables at home. <laughs> they're, they're masochists. They like to stick their face in there and see all the wrinkles and the pimples and the, the stuff, right, that needs to be what? Covered up. Uh, they're, they're about to go on set and they're about to do a shoot and they got to look good and they got to look beautiful. So they, they stick their faces in these, these mirrors with all the lights around them in order to cover everything up so that they're able to, to look the way they ought to look. And what the Apostle Paul says is, is that the law works the same way. When you actually try to measure your life against the law that God has laid down in the Bible, all the law does is exacerbate the shortcomings and allow you to see just how bad they are. In fact, he goes so far, and it's, it's strange, eh? In verse 20, he, he goes so far as to say, um, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Now, how interesting is that, eh? Is Paul saying, therefore, that, that without the law, you wouldn't know that you're a sinner? Like, if it wasn't for God saying, hey, that's wrong. Stop killing people. That's what I call murder. If it wasn't for him doing that, you'd be like, oh, I'm allowed to go around and take out people's lives. Now, that's not exactly what he's saying. What he is saying, however, is you discover sometimes just how bad things are. For example, so a number of years ago, well, yeah, like super long time ago, like super duper long time ago, my parents bought a new car. And it was a Volvo 740 Turbo. This thing was fast, okay? This thing was too fast, in fact. And the day after they brought it home, it was supposed to be my mom's car, but the day after they brought it home, brought it home my parents had to go to something up north. I don't know what it was. Anyhow, my dad was driving. He got a ticket on the way up to where they were going, and he got a ticket on the way down. And the second time he got stopped, he, you know, the police officer pulls him over and he does the same thing that what police officers always do, right? Do you know how fast you were going? And he responded with, I, I don't know, like 100 maybe? And the, it was an 80. The guy said, you were doing 120 kilometers an hour in an 80 zone. And my dad was like... This was a really nice car, okay? You ever notice that when you drive a nice vehicle? Like most of mine are not so nice, right? So you get near the speed limit and everything starts to shake and you're like, okay, don't go any faster. But when you're driving a good vehicle, you're zipping along at 120 on the Queen E and it feels like you're doing 80, right? And it's not until the law says, this is how fast you are going, that you go, oh, I had no idea. The speed limit was 80, and I discovered I'm going 120. That's how badly I have broken the speed limit. This is what the law does to us. And by the way, that means that all of us fall short. We all have broken God's law, and not a single one of us is able to make us right before God by keeping His law. And that's 
that's whether you are a religious person or not, okay? That maybe there's someone here this morning who says, well, that's all well and good for you Christians with your Bible that's always giving you all these rules that you need to follow, but I'm not that. I'm a secular person, and I have my own standards and my own morals, and I decide what those are myself, and I'm, I'm not subject to God's law. Ah, but you don't escape the problem here. Paul says in Romans 2, one chapter earlier than the text that we have this morning, in Romans 2, he says that, that every human being has a conscience. Every human being has kind of a built-in gauge or a built-in standard. Now, it's all messed up by sin, but it's still there, and every single one of us has it. And this standard is the standard that we live by. Everybody's got to have a standard to live their own lives by, whether, whether they believe in, in God or not. And strangely enough, we seem to have a standard that we want other people to live by, too. And, and in Romans 2, Paul explains it something like this. It, it's, it's, it, you know, this is how a theologian explained it. He, said, he says, you know, uh, God on the last day, if you're, not a, if you're not a believer and you stand before God on the last day, on the judgment day, and you say to him, look, I, you know, I, was not, I didn't believe in you and I wasn't subject to all your rules and stuff, God, he might just say, oh, that's fine. I'm not sure he will, but just for argument's sake. Oh, that's fine. He'll, he'll pull back your hair or he'll release or he'll like flip up your skin or something, and he'll reveal that every one of us has been walking around with a secret tape recorder all our lives. And on that tape recorder is a recording of only every time that you wanted somebody else to do something a certain way. So every time you have complained about how someone else has done something. And he says, God will say, okay, look, I'm not going to judge your life by my standards. I'll just judge your life by your own standards. And let's see how you do. And he presses play on the tape. How do you think you'll do? How do you think you'll do at living up to the standards that you just set for other people? I think every one of us has to admit, look, I can't even live the life that I want to live, let alone live the life that God wants me to live. So religious or not, we're all stuck failing to measure up, okay? And that's why Paul says in verse 19 here, he says, every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So to be justified, on the one hand, means to have have, have to be forgiven for having failed to meet that standard, okay? To be pardoned, to be free from liability, okay? Jesus died to pay that debt. If you go out for dinner with a whole group of people and every one of us has, has a bill to pay and then one person stands up and says, hey, I got it, they pull out their, you know, their black American Express card or whatever, you've heard of those, right? No limit on the black American Express card. Everybody wants one. You can literally buy a country with that thing, I think. Anyhow, they pull out their black Express part, American Express card and they, they put it down and they say, it's covered, it's paid for, your debt is paid. You are now allowed to get up from the table and just walk out of the restaurant. You're not dining and dashing because somebody has paid. And Jesus, in dying the death we should have died, he has paid so that you and I can be forgiven, okay? Now, that's basically the negative side of things. We needed to be forgiven. We needed to have the, the debt paid, and it's great. It's wonderful. 
But that's not everything justification does. There's a positive regard. Remember, you're, you're not just going from negative to neutral in your relationship with God. You're going from negative to positive in your relationship with God. And so there's a quote on the front of your bulletin by a guy named Marcus Lone. He puts it this way. The voice which spells forgiveness will say, you may go. You have been let off the penalty which your sin deserves. But the verdict which means acceptance, that is justification, will say, you may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. Hear that? We're actually brought into the loving presence of the Almighty God. Well, how does justification do that? And that's found in the second problem. In verse 23, Paul doesn't just say, for all have sinned. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? And there's a, a number of ways to interpret this in this passage, but certainly this is true. The Bible says that human beings are all what's called image bearers of God. That means that we were created in God's image. We are created to reflect something of who He is, His character, His grandeur. We were made to be great. We were made to be glorious. We were were made for greatness. And you know, this is interesting. I bet most of you sense that to some degree about yourself. You can't say it because you don't want to look like like a narcissist or something, right? But many of us, deep down in our souls, we know that we're not realizing our potential, that there's, there's probably more we could do, probably more we could be. Even the most successful of us feel this way. And maybe we don't feel it necessarily in one area of our life, but we feel it in another. So for perhaps you're a very, very successful uh, person in business, but you, 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 like, you think, man, I'm a terrible parent. You know, I have a friend who's very involved uh, with his kids. This is one of the reasons I hate Facebook. Because on Facebook, you know, took their kids there, went to that thing, had that event at home, all this kind of stuff. And I'm watching this Facebook feed thinking, man, do I stink. I don't do any of that with my kids. I know I don't measure up, so to speak. And, and you know that too. Every parent, okay, you know, I, I know I use a lot of parenting illustrations. I can't help it though. I, I got a bunch of kids and this is where I live. Every parent, you know, we, every parent thinks their kid is special, right? Have you ever noticed that? If you don't have kids, you totally notice it because you're talking about you're talking with someone and they're telling you about how amazing their kids are and you're rolling your eyes going, you know, I don't see it. They're not that awesome. <laughs> uh, and if you are a parent and you're listening to another parent talk about how awesome their kids, you're rolling their eyes thinking, oh man, they're always talking about how awesome their kids are. Well, you know what? My kid's awesome too and I don't have to talk about it like you do. <laughs> we believe deep down in ourselves, right, that that that. There's something in our kids or in ourselves that, that if it could just be unleashed, there's a, there's, a, there's a greatness in us. And you suppress it, particularly you Christian people, you suppress it as good Christian people because the Bible's always telling you to be humble 
and you don't want to be a proud person, and you don't want to be a boastful person, and that's, that's all very well and good, but you can't shake the gnawing suspicion that there is more in you than you are releasing. And you know what? That's because it's true. C.S. Lewis, in a famous sermon called The Weight of Glory, said, you know, there are no ordinary people. You have never met an ordinary person. Because we're all image bearers of God himself. Now, when I say image bearers, I don't mean image like statue. I mean more image like, like a mirror. We are created to reflect God's glory. We are created to reflect his majesty and reflect his beauty. So just like a mirror, when it's turned to the light, it will reflect the light. As we're turned to God, we will reflect his character and his nature. God is creative. God is smart, if I can use that term. God is, 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 is good. God is talented. You ever wonder why? Did you know that there are 2,000 species of beetles? Why 2,000 species? Why? Who needs 2,000 different types of beetles? Because of the creativity of God. And you know what? We are creative too. Have you ever watched, you know, a YouTube uh, People Are Awesome video? You ever watched any of those? People are awesome. People can do incredible things. They, they have abilities that are, are mind-boggling. Every time I stop and think about my smartphone, and I think about what can be accomplished with this little thing. And I think the next closest creature on this planet to, to the beings that, that made this, okay, swing in trees and are covered in hair and, you know, the, we freak out and are amazed when they take a stick and stick it in a hole to get ants to stick on the, the, the stick or termites to stick on the stick so they can pull it out and eat it. And we say, wow, they're amazing. That's the next closest creature to us. Human beings are, are, are so vastly superior, if I can use that term, than from all the other creatures on the planet because we are created in the image of God. But because of sin... We don't meet our potential. What, what could we do if it weren't for sin? How, how amazing could you be? Like, how good could I look if it weren't for laziness that refuses to get up and exercise or have the self-control to eat a little bit less once in a while? You ever... Human beings are always interested in that. Eh? We use 10% of our brains. You ever hear of the movie Limitless? You ever watch that movie? This guy takes a pill and he accesses like another 60% of his brain or something. There's also another one called Lucy, a movie called Lucy, where this woman, she gets, she gets control of 100% of her brain and you basically turn into a, a superhero. We fall short of the glory of God because we have rebelled against him and it's like taking that mirror and turning it away from the sun. And by the way, it's because we talk about sin and we talk about, about our righteousness as being of filthy rags and we're always full of guilt and people are like, you Christians, you man, you're like, you're all neurotic. You gotta loosen up and, and think better about yourselves. Actually, Christianity has the highest view of human nature of all the worldviews. 
because we believe that we were created in the image of God. If you're a secular person and you don't have any God and we're just sort of atoms that were slammed together, you know, we're like a dog or we're like crabgrass. There's really no difference. We may be more complex than either of those things, but, but really, we're not, in our nature, in our being, we're not more valuable, we're not more significant. If you believe in the, in the dignity of humanity, you actually are likely borrowing from this Judeo-Christian understanding. You're, you're stealing, and that's fine, go ahead, take it. We'd prefer that you believe in the dignity of human beings. But this is where it comes from. So Paul says, okay, a righteousness from God has been made known. God's righteousness, God's glory has been given to us. This is, this is what he's saying. Justification is more than just you're forgiven, you may go. Justification includes glory, meaning you may come. Because the righteousness of God, when, when Paul says a righteousness of God has been revealed, he's talking about the righteousness of his son, Jesus. Jesus didn't just die the death you should have died. He lived the life you should have lived. He, he fulfilled God's law perfectly. He never sinned once in all the days that he lived. He avoided sin. He avoided licentiousness. He avoided all of that. But it's not just that. He also was the perfect image of God because the author to the Hebrews, in Hebrews 1, chapter 3, he says this. Listen for it. This will blow your mind. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. and the exact representation of his being. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the one from whom God's majesty, God's glory springs. It comes. When you look at him, you see it in all its, its majesty. If you read about, and I challenge you, if you've never read the Bible, if you've never really wrestled with the person of Jesus, I, I challenge you, read the book of John. Read the book of Mark, read it slowly, read it carefully, and, and just learn about Jesus and discover what he's like. You can't help but be attracted to him. There's been nobody like him, nobody. So brave and courageous and yet so tender. So willing to spend time with anybody and yet so wise. And he did great things. Paul's point is this. That, all of that, has been given to you. That glory is in you. So you've got to understand, God doesn't say to you just sort of grudgingly, all right, well, you know, Jesus died on the cross, he paid for your sins, so, you know, you're in. It's, you know, it's like, it's, this never happened to me, but I, I don't know, this idea popped in my head. You know, you're, you're, you're standing outside a really hot nightclub in the city, and you're in line hoping to get in, and, but then a, a very famous star uh, comes up, and he can go right around the line, and, and, and he says, he points to you, and he says, come with me, and, he, and you tag along with this guy, and, and the big burly bouncer, he, he looks there, and he sees the star, and he says, sees you, and he, he goes, looks at the star, and says, wow, you're a star, and looks at you, and goes, well, I don't know what you are, but whatever, you're with the star, so you get to come in, 
And a lot of people sort of get the idea that that's how it works with God, that, that God is like this bouncer standing before heaven, and he says, well, all right, you can come in, but just because you're with Jesus. But the amazing thing about justification is that God sees you as the star. He doesn't let you in sort of begrudgingly. He looks at you and he delights in you. Like, he can't get enough of you. He thinks you're he sees the glorious creature that you don't see in yourself. He, he sees that because he sees Jesus. Think, think, think about what honors Jesus deserves because of what he's done, the medals and the accolades. Think about the, the glory. It says in Philippians 2 that God exalted him to the highest place because of what he has done. He has been decorated with, with the greatest medals of honor. And the gospel that Paul is talking about here is that you are decorated with the same medals of honor. You are treated as though you had done it. Abraham, it says in Romans 4, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I, I don't know how to get it across. I'm, I'll be honest. I don't know how to get it across. Maybe because I don't get it. To, like deep down in my soul, I don't, well, I know deep down in my soul I don't get it. It's time to apply this. We got to close and understand what it means to rest in Christ's righteousness. Listen, I don't get this, and I know that most of you, many of you probably don't get this either, and here's why I know that you probably don't get this. Even though this is the hinge of the gospel, John Calvin, a famous theologian, called this the hinge of the gospel. The whole thing turns on this concept, and yet we don't get it. Now, this is going to be hard to hear. It's going to be painful to hear for some of you, particularly long-time Christians, but you've got to hear this because here's our problem. We tend to base our justification, that is, our right standing with God. Remember, that's what it means, standing in a right relationship with God. We tend, even though you've been a Christian for decades, you tend to base your righteousness before God not on Christ's record but on your own. That is your natural tendency all the time. And here's how you can prove it. Take two minutes and just analyze for a second. When do you feel most? Doesn't it depend on how you're doing? Right? You feel good when you've accomplished something. You, you feel good when you're making progress. You feel good when you've done it. You feel good when at the end of the week you say, I promised that I would jog three times a week this week and I did it four times. Or maybe when you say, you know, at the end of the week, I didn't do it. You know what I'm talking about. That thing that you do that you know is a sin, you know it's wrong, you've been battling it for years and years and years, and you can say at the end of the week, I didn't do it. I didn't yell at my kids when I wanted to. 
or if you were a kid, I didn't fall into peer pressure when I wanted to. And when do you feel down? When do you feel spiritually down? Isn't it when you broke the diet? Isn't it when you yelled? Isn't it when you gave in to temptation? Isn't it when you were lazy and you wanted to be hardworking? And, and when you're up, you're feeling so close to God. I'm feeling His love. I know He cares about me. And when you're down, you're feeling so distanced from God and you think He hates you or, or, you're, or you're under His punishment or, or whatever. Because you're basing your justification not on His record but on yours. We do it all the time. Here's the truth you need to hear that will blow your mind and if you just spend the next week just thinking about this one idea. This, this one idea. Frankly, if you don't remember the rest of the sermon, I can live with that. Not easily, but I can. Listen. God will not love you one iota more a billion years from now when you are perfect in every way and you finally have unleashed that glory. He, I should say, has unleashed that glorious person that you know is lost inside of you somewhere. He will not love you one iota more on that day than he loves you in Jesus Christ right here, right now. Some of you, you know, coming to church once a month is hard because frankly, your heart is hard. Some of you, giving away money is hard because you are, no offense, but you're such a tightwad. You so deeply believe that your righteousness is rooted in how much money you have. You're not holding on to Jesus. Some of you are like me, and you cannot stand it when you can't make somebody do what you want them to do. Because underneath it all, deep down, your sense of identity rests in their success. So if they fail, you fail. But God doesn't see you any less as his beloved child in Christ right now than he will when all of those things you're messing with and fighting with and dealing with constantly and going to bed feeling guilty over, when all of that's gone, he won't love you one lick more than he loves you right now. That's what justification means. That's what it means. Robert Murray McShane once said, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. I think if we did that, I, I, I can't imagine what kind of people we would be. But I think we'd be pretty unbelievable. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for justification. Forgive us for our failure <laughs> to remember it, to rest in it. Forgive us for that. Enable us, O oh God, to find our sense of who we are rooted entirely and completely in who our Savior is and in what He's done for us. For it is in His name we pray it. Amen.